On today's episode of Dance Med Spotlight, I'm talking with Dr. Rebecca Griffith, a physical therapist who works in the emergency department and just so happens to be a dance mom. She is sharing so much valuable information with us today, and we talk about a lot of different things, not just about things we should be screening for, doing thorough systems reviews with our clients, um, but also talking about things that we can be doing and thinking about to help our patients avoid going to the emergency room in the first place, whether that is through prevention or just knowing what we have at our disposal to avoid needing to send them there. We talk about a lot of different things that also have more to do, in my mind, with kind of the more personal side of the clinician versus just talking skill set of everything. So be sure to check this out. It's a really great episode with some great conversation. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. On today's episode of Dance Med Spotlight, where we talk about all things dance medicine and dance science, I have Dr. Rebecca Griffith. She is a physical therapist who works in the emergency department, and I'm excited to learn a lot from her today. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. I, this is a um, very interesting uh, place for me to be interviewing as I am not a dancer, nor do I do anything with dance medicine, but I am the very proud mother of a competitive dancer. So I do have some insight into the crazy world that you live in. Yes. And we'll probably need your services at some point or another. <laughs> Fair enough. And hopefully, hopefully I won't need yours. Hopefully since not. You work yes. in the emergency department. Yes. But I know that you're there in case I need you. Yes. <laughs> so my first question that I always like to ask people is tell me a bit about, well, I guess first, what is PT in the emergency department and what got you interested in this area? Okay, well, I'll just preface this by saying, like, I'm the queen of soapboxes. And so this is one of my big soapboxes that a physical therapist in the emergency department is a physical therapist who happens to work in the emergency department. So I do the same thing that everyone else does. I evaluate, treat, and manage my patient's well-being. I just do it in a different location than you do. And there are different, um, you know, contextual things that go along with that, but I'm still a physical therapist, just like everybody else. And I think one of the things we do a disservice to ourselves as a profession is I'm an acute care PT, I'm a dance PT, I'm an emergency PT. We're all physical therapists. We might have a niche, we might specialize, but really we're all doing the same thing. We're just applying it to different patient populations. And that's the beautiful part. Yeah. But so many people say, oh gosh, like, what do you even do? I, I do physical therapist things. Yes. And I kind of, to answer your second question, I kind of got into that by accident because there just started to be a bigger and bigger need for patients who couldn't be admitted to the hospital but couldn't go home. So it was like really answering the call to purgatory. How can I help you and get you moving one way or the other? And from there just kind of grew into this, how can we not only get those people taken care of, but improve the experience and the health outcomes of, of multiple types of patients that come to the hospital? Yeah, I love that. And I think it, there's such a benefit of having physical therapists in the emergency department. I know it's an area that years ago when I first started hearing about it, it was like, why isn't this more of a thing? And I love that you're able to help make it more of a thing. 
That's my goal. I mean, ideally, I think every everyone that goes to the emergency department should have access to a physical therapist. And I know that's a bold statement because there are emergency departments everywhere and there are freestanding EDs everywhere and there are urgent cares everywhere. I think every one of them should at least have access to a physical therapist by telehealth. And there's lots of reasons for that, but I think one of them is what we're gonna talk about today. If you have a dancer who needs to go to the emergency department, is that really where we wanna send them? Right. Is that the next best step? And I think, you know, it's important to really focus on the piece that you started with of you are a physical therapist still doing the physical therapy things that we do, assessing, treating, all of that sort of thing. And it is not, I'm there to fit crutches and teach someone how to, to ambulate with crutches. That may be part of what you do, but yeah. that is not the reason to pull you in. No, that's like fitting crutches is like the salt on the dinner after it's been cooked, right? Or the sprinkles on the cupcake. Yeah, I do that. But it's part of being a doctor of physical therapy who's managing their patients. And that's one aspect of their care that I manage. But that's not why I'm there. I'm not there to fill a technical need. I'm not there to be a technician. I'm not there to fill orders. I'm part of the multidisciplinary team, evaluate, treating, and managing patient care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you gave a beautiful segue for it a moment ago, let's talk about how some of this applies within this dance medicine space. Thinking of whether it's dancers who are coming into the clinic mm-hmm. after something has happened, they're having pain, they're having injury, they're at a competition, we're working backstage. Um, you know, there's lots of times where we definitely are screening, doing a lot of triage, thinking, is this something we can take care of now? Do I send them somewhere? What do we do with this information? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it's a question that applies to any physical therapist. How do I know that I can provide the level of care that this person needs? And I think some considerations that are unique to dancers, what I would start with is making sure you're assessing your dancer's overall health and well-being. Because I do see a lot of competitive athletes. I see a lot of, um, you know, our our military who are drilling for the weekend or um, people who are athletes who are training for something really specific, including dancers who maybe aren't managing their overall well-being. And that's the thing that pushes them into the ED or might take them out of competition, whether that's a heat stroke, whether that's undertraining, whether that's not eating enough, whether that's dehydration. So I would say the first step, it, it, from my perspective, if I am managing dancers, is I'm making sure their overall health and wellness is taken care of. And I know what their baseline is, because then that's going to make your ability to triage these patients so much easier. If you don't know what their vitals are on the regular, like, how do you know if this is a problem or not? Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't. Like, is your patient normally kind of tachycardic at baseline and then they dance at a higher heart rate than that? Or are they coming off the dance floor at 210 and are, are you know, really needing to go to the ED because they can't, their heart rhythm is is not right. So I would say knowing knowing what their baseline health is. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking a patient into the clinic, I think the first thing to start with is an overall systems review of that patient, every system. I know you're here for knee pain, but like the knee bones connected to the every other thing. Right. Yeah. So I think doing a, a like solid systems review, making sure you know their vitals, making sure you understand what their nutrition intake is. And I talked to residents about this. I'm going to kind of like 
talk about dancers like my residents. I say, you know, yeah. I need you to look at your five areas of wellness and I call it the wellness wheel, nutrition, hydration, stress management, sleep, and movement. And so I talk to residents about that, right? Because they're expected to do high performance under a lot of stress and they really can't if, if they're not managing that. And if you are skimping on one of those things, then the spoke falls out and the wheel stops turning. So any triage really needs to start with looking at those five areas and seeing what needs to be shored up. So I would say that's, that's piece number one. Yes. Piece number two would be making sure that your dancer is prepared for what they're going to undertake. Like I know from my experience as a dance mom, and God bless it, I never thought I'd be a dance mom, but here we are, that dancers are athletes. Yes. And performers. Yes. I, I think of them as performance athletes, and maybe I am not right about that. You tell me. Yeah. I, I particularly love the term artistic athlete. Artistically, I love that. That's even better um, because the things I see her do and the amount of preparation it requires and the amount of stress and everything that goes with that. And let's talk about the equipment. The shoes are ridiculous. The outfits are amazing, but difficult to move in and all the other things that go around with that. So the next thing I'm looking at, like from a prevention standpoint is, is there anything I can do to make sure the equipment is on point? Like, uh, am I looking at the shoes? Am I looking at, like, my daughter had an incident where, like, the fake eyelashes caused a visual disturbance during a performance, and that could lead to injury. You could go off the stage like that. So right. prevention would be the second thing when I'm thinking about triage and making sure that nothing happens to my, my dancer. But if something does, I think that's your real question. How do I know what to do with this person? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we offer is a course on digital triage to actually keep patients out of the emergency department because we'd really appreciate partnership from physical therapists in every area to help keep patients out of the ED if you can. Obviously, if a patient's having a medical emergency and that's very clear, please don't hesitate. If you're not sure, please don't hesitate. Like I'd rather you be wrong and waste the patient's time and not miss something huge. Yes. So. I would say that's that's number one. If you think there's a medical emergency, please send that patient. But part of how you're going to know that there's a medical emergency is if you have that baseline information. Mm -hmm. If it's a dancer you don't know, take that information. If somebody goes down in front of you, you're looking at past medical history, risk factors, medications, vital signs, like what was their last normal? What did they do today that was different than any other day? And kind of getting some of that information first. I had a, mm -hmm. an, an occurrence this weekend with somebody who called me for this purpose, for digital triage to see if they needed to go to the ED. And it's a lot of pressure because you have to really decide, mm -hmm. is this person having an emergency or not? And luckily in this case, after following those steps, Tell me about your past medical history. What medications are you taking? What was your function before this? What happened to cause this? How are you feeling now? Is it changing? Are your symptoms stable or do you feel like they're declining? Those are all questions that I asked. It was very clear that it was a musculoskeletal inciting event. And so I gave them advice for how to self-manage that for a couple hours. And then I checked back in. Mm-hmm. Are you improving or are you worsening? Is your, is your condition stable? 
And after checking in, the answer was yes, I'm doing so much better. I've been doing these things. I'm going to be able to manage this. I will see somebody on Monday. So I was really able to keep somebody completely out of the emergency department. So that's our goal. Yes. I'm also guessing you're going to get the question a lot of, can I keep dancing? Oh, yes. That's a Because I also one. have a runner. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So I uh -huh. dancers and runners are so fully committed. And 100%. that's the question that I think is going to be the hardest for you, maybe. So what is what are your thoughts about how you manage that? Yeah, that's an interesting one because it's, you know, it a lot of times it comes down to things like first of all, is this an acute thing that just started versus something chronic that maybe is kind of flaring up and getting irritated now? Um, how much are symptoms changing? What kinds of symptoms are coming along with it? You know, if we're having things like numbness, tingling, that's not good. Um, versus just like a, it's uncomfortable. That's yeah. going to give me a different feeling about all of that. And really kind of getting some of those different pieces together and learning about, you know, especially if they're thinking competition or performing that they're trying to kind of suck it up for. Yes. Can I make it through this this race? Can I make exactly. it through this dance? Like learn what does this dance entail? What does this sh show entail? Are there props, costumes, shoes, things that we need to be considering where it's like, okay, there's a lot of things that are not in your favor for this right now versus maybe there's some things we can kind of manage a little bit to make it okay for you to work through as long as we know we're going to be doing something right afterwards to take care of it too. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a question that comes up frequently. Yeah, I think we just go back to our PT school lesson, right? Like, can we remediate this issue right yes. now? Yes. Can we compensate for this issue? And then I always forget what's the third one. Uh, remediation, compensation, and... We should know this. Oh, we should, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, remediation, compensation, and... Yeah. I'm not going to remember, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Is there something we can do to like make this happen for you today or do we need to stop? And also I'm going to refer you back to the evaluate, evaluate and treat, evaluate and refer, or just refer. Mm -hmm. And this is that time when that really comes into play. And oftentimes you can evaluate and treat and refer in most incidences where you're not actually going to have somebody go to the emergency department. I would say mandatory must go, syncope, please go. Just make sure. Like visual changes that aren't like related to a past medical history item, like a migraine or something like that. Please go. Like you don't want to mess around with that. Altered mental status. Do not pass go. Please just come, especially if you're a young, healthy dancer. That's really unusual. Yes. Uh, things like that. Suspected fracture. I would say take some caution with that and think about that. Like, um, look at your imaging rules. Does this actually need imaging today? If mm -hmm. obviously, if there's a visible fracture, visible deformity, yes, send them for imaging. Sometimes you can make that an urgent care visit and not an emergency care visit. If it's an open fracture, that's an ambulance call. Um, that type of thing. But I would say really like use the guidelines that you have 
in your favor because you have that knowledge and they don't. And it's very reassuring for people. Oh, if you can walk on it, it might just be a sprain. You don't need to go right now to the emergency department. Or if you can and you're in a state that has imaging, you can send that person for imaging without sending them to the emergency department necessarily. So there are definite ways to start without escalating that care. Because my hope is that you have an ongoing relationship with your parent patients, and I'd much rather you take control of managing that patient's outcomes rather than just sending them to the ED where then they'll be referred on to somebody else anyway. So since you have that relationship and that trust, you should be able to tell the patient, this needs an x-ray, this may not need that today. Mm-hmm. So those are some things that I think are definite like, please go nows, and other like more like yellow flags. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, hitting on some of those points, being comfortable with some of those things like Ottawa ankle rules and all of our different things for do we need to have imaging done? Do we suspect that there's a fracture? Mm-hmm. Um, being able to do all of those vitals assessments and whether it's somebody we're familiar with or not, you know, is this within normal for their demographic and for what they're doing or not? Yes. Um, And then one important piece in all of this too, that I think is really fascinating when it comes to dancers, like so many other athletes, there's research that shows dancers have a higher pain tolerance and threshold. And so what it takes for them to get to a point of like, oh, this hurts and maybe I should do something about it is a bit higher than the average person walking down the street. And so, you know, if we're having a dancer coming to us and telling us something hurts, we need to listen to that. Pay attention. Because it means something at least significant enough is happening for us to need to check it out. I would agree with that. I also ask people when they are in a lot of pain, what have you tried? Because the number of patients that come to the emergency department that I haven't even taken an ibuprofen or a Tylenol is high. I've had this horrible back pain. I can't sleep. I can't stand up. I'm like, okay, did you try anything at home for that? No. Okay. So I I also say, what have you tried? And then if they've tried everything, that's a red flag. There are still probably things we can do first to help that patient that they don't know they should try. There's always symptom modulation techniques we can use. But if that's not working, I mean, it may be time to send that patient to the emergency department. However, I will tell you, they'll probably get Tylenol and ibuprofen at the emergency department. If you send somebody to the ED who's in 10 out of 10 pain that doesn't have a major fracture or dislocation or something like that, they're still not going to get that higher level narcotic opioid level medication. They will try other things like Tylenol, ibuprofen, lidocaine, things like that. So again, I mean, I think that's a misconception that patients have too. If I go to the emergency department, I'm going to get something for my pain. But that may not be true. So what might happen is that they end up in the emergency department for hours on an uncomfortable gurney, getting testing done that they might not need and still not have their pain well controlled. So if there's something I can do to help that patient self-manage their pain, in addition to things that they might try on their own, obviously I'm not advising people to medicate themselves, but I, I might say something like, what would you take at home normally for something like this? Mm-hmm. And I don't tell them to take it. I just kind of have that conversation with them. How would you normally manage this pain? Have you tried that yet? Would you like yep. to try that as we work together? But I'm not going to tell people how to manage their pain from a pharmacological perspective, but I do ask them about it yeah. because I know that what's going to happen at the ED is probably not going to meet their expectations. So if I can keep that patient home and save them a very expensive trip for ibuprofen and Tylenol, I'm going to start with that. 
Yes. And I think, you know, particularly in states like Colorado, where both of us are, we have a fantastic Practice Act. Thanks Thank to you, folks APTA. Like you. Thank you, APTA. I'm just going <laughs> to yes. throw that out there. Thank you, volunteers of the APTA in Colorado, exactly. for making sure we have such an amazing Practice Act. And if you're in Colorado and you're listening, we're about to sunset our license and start all over again. So our yes. Practice Act is coming up. The expiration date is coming. And so if you want to keep the lovely Practice Act that we have, we need you. Yes, exactly. I got that email today for the survey. Excellent. I'm going to be it. doing it when we're done. Um, but yeah, like states like Colorado, we have direct access. We're yes. able to do imaging. We have so many things in our toolboxes and access that we can have for patients. Mm -hmm. So being able to really work within the full scope of our practice here is an amazing thing. And knowing that people can contact people like us when they are experiencing pain and try to get in on my schedule or something like that. You know, a lot of my dancers who've been with me, they know that they can probably get in pretty quickly or at least talk about some things and kind of triage over the phone a little bit if it's outside of hours or something like that. Yes. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing to be able to have that access here. Also to be able to go to your patients where they are. And that's, that's maybe soapbox number two for today is that I believe we need to be where our patients are. This like nine to five clinic model doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. So when you are thinking about going to see a healthcare provider, how do you fit that into your day? You have to stop patient care, right? You have to block your schedule. You can't, you will lose income if you go to a doctor's appointment. So many of the patients I see yeah. have two, three jobs just trying to meet and make ends meet. They can't go to see a PT that's open till 4.30. Like, that's it's not a thing. We need to get to where our patients are to provide the access to care that they need. And so if you are at a dance competition, if you are backstage, if you are at a convention, like, you are going to be so visible and accessible to those people and make a huge difference. And those patients who don't know you exist, that physical therapists are a thing that can help them, maybe you're sparing somebody a trip through the medical system. Yes. You're sparing them a trip into the hospital. You're sparing them a trip down a, the road of chiropractic, which might not work for them. It might not be the best choice. So making sure that you're visible and you have access to those patients is critical as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And having been backstage and on site within so many different genres of dance with different populations, it's been a really interesting experience because a lot of times they don't know that that PTs exist or exactly what we do, especially people who understand dance more specifically yes. mm -hmm. um, and can help them and aren't just going to tell them just stop dancing as the cure to their pain, um, which yeah. is a whole nother discussion. Oh, no, I'm going um, through that myself with my <laughs> foot injury. You just, just if you just don't do those things, it's fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. Just okay. don't do what you want to do. It's, it's cool. Just leave little pieces um, of your life behind. Yeah whatever. Um, and then when we are there, like there was a time working with a group called Doctors for Dancers where they were trialing the idea of being on site at conventions and working in conjunction with the convention or competition weekend. We saw so many dancers coming through that were dancing with either acute pain because of the environment that they're dancing on, maybe doing spins on carpet, for example, um, yeah. or doing, you know, horrible concrete underneath the carpet and no padding and they're doing tons of jumping and that sort of thing. Yeah. Screening for fractures. 
dancers who are traveling for competitions or conventions. And so we're seeing a lot of like, you know, under eating, not hydrating sufficiently. And then particularly in Colorado, altitude, altitude. sickness. Yeah. Welcome. Um, you know, so all of these different things that we're seeing. And when we were able to provide some care on site, the parents and the studio owners who were there with the dancers, they were so appreciative that we were there. And it wasn't just up to them to make a decision for the dancer, yes. the kid, of should they keep dancing? Do we need to go see somebody? Is there something that we can do to help? Yeah. And my experience is different. I'm a martial artist. So I have a black belt in Taekwondo. And so I go to Taekwondo tournaments and, and you would expect that there would be medical staff on site for something like that. Cause we're literally like beating each other up and there is, but they're EMTs and paramedics. And this is absolutely no shade to EMTs and paramedics because they work with them every day and we need them and we need them at events like that because all kinds of things can go wrong. Yeah. But when you're talking about like musculoskeletal triage, that's not their like spiritual gift. That's like their their default is going to be like, do you think we need to take you? We'll take you. Or can you walk on it? Can you not walk on it? And that's probably about, or, or maybe here's some ice. And that's going to be the level of nuance that you're going to get. And so when I travel with my team to tournaments, I am usually like the unofficial advisor for, this is a problem. This is not a problem. This is what we're going to do after your next round. Yes, you can finish this round if you can put weight on it. You know, like it's much easier when you're a specialist at the sport and you have that whole level of education behind you. So I think there's massive opportunity there as well. Even if you're not able to be on site with your dancers, if you can do digital triage with them, like if all of my dancers are going to go to like, um, a convention in California, but I, I can't afford to go do that. Or I we have a conflict. I can still be available to do that triage. Mm -hmm. And if you're not sure how to start with that digital triage, there are so many ways we can help you get set up to do that. Part of that's understanding how telehealth works. Part of that's understanding where you're licensed to provide care. Part of it is having a network of referrals and resources available to your patients. So that's another issue that I find people are sending people to the ED because they don't know where else to send them. Mm -hmm. So when you're building your practice, when you're building that, um, that practice to support your patients, you need to have other people. You can't do it alone. I would think, especially with uh, an artistic athlete like a dancer, you need to have the whole circle. You might need to have nutritionists. You might need to have psychologists. You might need to have, um, gosh, orthopedists, like whoever mm -hmm. you might need that you have ready referrals for so that when you're you're sure they don't necessarily need to go to the ED or you send that patient for imaging and they do have a fracture, can you send them directly to the orthopedist or do they have to go to the ED? How can we bypass that part of the medical system and leave the ED available for like true emergencies that that or safety net issues? Mm hmm. Yeah. But without that, re that resource network, it's very hard to provide confident triage. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it too is not only having the network built and available, knowing who and when to refer somebody, but also how we're educating our patient that comes in about why we're making those referrals, why yes. that is the person for them to go see. Because sometimes I see that as the challenge where maybe somebody whether it's, you know, there's a million different things that could be a barrier for them to have access to that person, whether it's finance, time, who knows what, a million mm -hmm. things. 
but educating this is the person I'm sending you to and why is yes. so important. And let me help you make the appointment. Health literacy is so profoundly low that the, we we literally have had to have people whose job is to help connect them to the next step because they might not understand why, they might not understand how, and they might not be sure how to navigate that system. So just mm -hmm. taking that extra step and saying, I'm going to help you get scheduled with this person because it's critical that you do that and here's why. And if you are sending patients to the emergency department, something you just touched on is think about the financial cost of that, especially if you have young dancers. Um, understanding their insurance picture, particularly if they're self-pay for you, understanding like that you may be sending somebody into a huge financial burden that they may not need. And I say that as a human with a $6,000 deductible with my great health insurance. So I think very carefully before anybody in my family gets medical care of any kind because of that $6,000 deductible. But if you're sending somebody there that really can't afford that, and it turns out they get Tylenol, ibuprofen, and a negative x-ray that they didn't need, you've added a tremendous financial burden to that person's life, which may impact their ability to continue dancing because dance is not cheap. So <laughs> I'm learning that one every year. It seems to get a little bit more involved. Mm -hmm. So I, I think just understanding that too. So if there's something you can do to help your patient avoid that, they will appreciate that too, because physical therapy is a much more cost-effective alternative. And if you send that person to the emergency department with back pain and they see me, they're going to be like, why did my physical therapist send me to the emergency department to see another physical therapist? because I'm a lot more expensive than you are, not because I make any money from that, but because the hospital will bill the whole emergency visit anyway. Yeah. So I think that's just another piece to consider. How can we help you maybe avoid that? Yes. And so much of that is definitely part of why I built my practice the way that I did and why I have things set up the way that I do. You know, I have my work phone, that is pretty much always with me or, you know, around where I know I'm going to be checking it and that kind of thing where my clients know that they can call me, whether it's because they just want to make an appointment or because something is going on and they need help sorting through it, or they have something that popped up while they're away at a convention or, you know, who knows what, um, but like they know that they can access me so that I can help them as we need to. And there have been times where like, you know, one of my professional dancers who had a weird schedule that didn't work with sort of my typical clinic schedule. Your nine to five clinic schedule? Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, had things where like I made an extra appointment slot for her in the evening to stay yes. so that we can get her seen. Or, you know, like I try being flexible because I know that the dance schedule is a different one and different genres of dance are different. So like the swing dancing that I do tends to be like a nighttime sport. Most of the dances don't even start until eight o'clock. And if you're at a convention and doing something like social dancing, it doesn't start till midnight. Mm -hmm. And so and then when, at that time, what's the option? Right. Exactly. The one place you can send somebody is the ED because that's the only thing that's open. Yeah. And so when I'm at conventions and set up there doing on-site stuff, even though I may say like I'm done taking people at like 1130, I also make sure that they know that like if something really comes up where somebody needs to be checked out, they can still try getting a hold of me as long as I'm not asleep um, yes. and not hearing the phone that, you know, I, I am there as a resource for all of that. And I think that 
also helps you build trust. And I would say that the only other thing I would add to that is when you're doing something at a convention or something where you don't know the people, the, the tip and trick I can give you from an emergency PT who never knows their patients ever, mm-hmm. every patient's a new patient, 99.9% of the time, you have to establish therapeutic alliance immediately. It can't wait. You have to establish trust, therapeutic alliance, expertise in what you're talking about, and help that patient emotionally regulate, physiologically regulate, know that they're safe, know that they're in good hands, and that you have a plan for them. And I think reassuring people goes a long way, and particularly with people who have hurt themselves doing something they love, that reassurance of stop focusing on what might happen and focus just on what is happening. Because I know with my athletes in my own home, I get a lot of, what if I can't run anymore? Or what if I can't compete? And then that like anxiety spirals and patients in the ED, what if I can't work? What if I can't take care of my children? What if I can't walk again? So mm-hmm. that immediate therapeutic alliance, trust building, reassurance building, instilling confidence, having them know you're the person to talk to, and that if you're not, you're not going to leave them. You're going to get them to the next best step, and they will leave with a plan, is invaluable. Because a lot of people, if they had somebody who could help them regulate and let them know that they were in good hands and that there was a plan, probably wouldn't end up in the emergency department. Because usually when big, scary things happen, people around them tend to panic. And then the patient also panics. And it's always fine to come to the emergency department for reassurance and to get checked out. But if you can provide that without the, like, and this is a big word, but without the trauma of going through the emergency department experience, because it is traumatic for a lot of people, so much the better. And that's how you end up with the patient for life, right? Definitely. Yeah. And that, that is so key. And I think, I think, particularly thinking of dancers and what we've already talked about of this idea of like so many of them may have a bad taste in their mouth working with medical providers in the past being Mm -hmm. told just to not dance or something like that they may be more hesitant to seek out care or they're already sort of like wound up for that expectation of this is what I'm going to hear from somebody. And so being able to have that conversation with them and help them kind of sort through things. Like sometimes it's, it's not even necessarily like I may never be able to dance again, but they're concerned about like, can I dance in the rest of the show? Can I dance in my competition that is coming up in a couple of hours? Yes. And helping them work through that, whether the answer is yes or no, but being confident and and um, supportive throughout that conversation is so important. And having them understand that you know how important it is to them. Yes. So whatever patients come into the ED for, I always ask them, why are you here? And what are you hoping to get from this visit in the emergency department? And they will tell you their biggest fears about what's happening with them. And that is where you can start. Oh, sometimes you can say, oh my gosh, you don't need to be worried about that at all. I can see why you were worried about that. I promise you, I'm here because you're not dying or I'm here because this is not a heart attack. Like, you know, like getting those big fears off the table. Yes. Immediately. And then focusing on the smaller ones and then helping them ground to the moment. This is what we need to do right now. 
And we'll mm -hmm. worry about that in a little bit, but we have a process to work through before we can get to the point where I can answer that question for you. But what I need you to do now is focus on helping me find those answers. And that, you know, people like having a partner in those moments of crisis. Yes. The other thing I do, like you alluded to, like people can be traumatized by the medical system. Oh I think that's so true. And I've been talking to so many people lately about trauma-informed care. And so I just assume trauma now mm -hmm. and approach people from that perspective. Have you seen a physical therapist before? How was that experience? Do you know what a physical therapist does? Okay, let's talk about that before I put my hands all over you. Yep. Let me tell you what I'm gonna do and why I'm here and not someone else. I'm gonna guide you through this process. But the, the, the like de-escalation piece has to happen first. And the way I explain that to students is when you're filling a car with gas, step number one is stopping the car. You have to put the car in park and you have to turn it off. You cannot fill it or take anything out of it until it stops moving and the engine stops like running, right? You have to turn it all off and then you can open it up and refill that car. But until you take that time to help that person turn their engine off, you're not going to get anything from them and you're not going to be able to do anything to them. Mm -hmm. So I think as an emergency PT and a parent, that's the best I can give advice I can give any physical therapist is assume trauma, turn the car off before you try to get anything out of it or refill it mm -hmm. because you, you just won't be successful. And yeah. when you can build that trust, you will go so much further, so much faster. Most definitely. And I think, you know, like thinking about, there were many things that came into my brain as you were saying that, but I think the one that particularly stands out to me right now is years ago I had, I was working at a typical outpatient clinic somewhere and had a patient who had been in a car accident with her two kids. She had gotten whiplash injuries. Kids seemed to be okay, like nothing significant. And she was there for an evaluation with me. And when we were just talking at the beginning, she's sitting there rocking and like tapping and all of these things, things where I can clearly see things are not okay right now. And, and there is a very, very low threshold of what we can do, what we can talk about and all of that sort of thing. And so, you know, part of what we did was we went through some meditation stuff together and we went through things to like calm down her system. And that's really where we spent a lot of our time that day. And even the next time she came in, it was working on some of those kinds of things. And then she was at the point where we could start to do more of our traditional, you know, go in, do all the testing, do our interventions, give the education, and she's ready to receive it. But if we hadn't taken that time to get her to that place, we wouldn't have gotten a dang thing done. She no. probably would have left in probably more pain than she came in with and with a bad taste in her mouth of how the interaction went. Yes, because her anxiety would have multiplied and not decreased, yeah. which often happens in the emergency department. So taking that time to really help people find that like calm center. And some people never have it. Some people do not live with that. And so helping them get as close to that as you can and being a safe space. And I had a, an instance last week where I had a patient where, I mean, he was like agitated, like 
super agitated, upset. Family members were too. A lot of screaming. Like, it, you can't, people can't hear you like that. And telling them to calm down doesn't help. And asking them not to be upset also doesn't help. So just helping guide somebody de-escalate back down to the point where they can communicate and you can hear them and they can hear you. I think it's probably one of the other things that will help you the most with trying to decide if somebody needs to go to the emergency department. If you take that initial reaction where there's, unless there's a bone sticking out, you know, take your time, focus on that first. Like, let's take some deep breaths. Let's look at this situation together. Let's do it systematically. I'm not going to leave you until we figure this out. Reassuring people as best you can and then taking stock. But if you do it while they're panicked, you will also feel panicked and you are going to feel very unsure about your judgment. And those will be the patients that'll keep you up at night because you won't be sure if you made the right decision. Mm-hmm. And somebody who doesn't trust you to make the decision is also not going to listen to your decision. And they're going to go either way. Yep. Definitely. Yeah, I find particularly when I'm on site working with people who are dealing with that more acute injury pain, whatever, so much of it is just that that reassurance, support, help them, like you're saying, kind of regulate and all of that before we we do anything else. And it's like, you know, whatever the the outcome of our examination and all of that is, whether it's something that's truly wrong and needs, you know, more attention, something where it's, they just need a little bit of help managing at the moment. Um, yeah, it's, it's so important to get that initial piece. And thinking also of the on-site side, a lot of times, most of the places that I've been on site, we at least have some flexibility in how much time we can spend with yes. with one another. It's like, you know, do you have 30 minutes? Do you have 15 minutes? Whatever. Let's figure out how much time we have. Maybe we spend a little bit of time now and then you come back once you do your next thing and have another opening. There've been other scenarios like with um, traveling companies, for example, where they book us on site for maybe a two hour chunk and we get 15 minutes per dancer. And that is it to triage and give them something to get them through the show for the night. And that's it. And we, we make notes in a notebook that they keep that travels with them. So you can go and kind of see what past notes were for that individual from other people. And then when they're back home, wherever that is with you know, wherever the company is located, then they probably have a regular therapist that they work with and will go back through the notes. But sometimes that is one of the challenges too, of you literally have 15 minutes with somebody you have never met before and you still need to do something meaningful for them. Well, and that's the beauty of triage and decision-making, right? Is that you have to be able to trust your judgment and trust your gut. And if you don't have the foundation for that, then we need to build that foundation and that confidence so that you know. And I would encourage you if you if you only have that 15 minutes, which the journal sounds kind of fun, I'm not gonna lie, like the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants journal. But um, <laughs> like making that decision confidently and knowing that you made the right call takes practice, it takes confidence, it takes mentorship. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't know how to do that, if you don't trust yourself or your gut, you, you may be making the wrong call. And what I see therapists do in that case is they usually underdo it. 
They might underdose that person. They might play it too safe. They might actually end up limiting that person more than missing something big. So usually I see big things being missed. I see overcautiousness. I see underdosing. I see like fear of making the decision. So we'll just make not a decision. And that I would encourage you to try and stay away from that as well. And so if you're feeling like you don't know what to do, we can definitely train you how to do that and find you mentors and things to, to build that confidence. So you can make those snap decisions in that 15 minute chunk of time. But your brain just needs to work in a little bit different way. Yes. I think we're just taught that like an evaluation should take 30 minutes and a treatment should take 30 minutes. And that's that is not how doctors function. Mm-hmm. That is not how a doctoring profession should function. I think we need to give in an ideal world, there's another soapbox, I guess. We give every patient the amount of time they need. If you need 15 minutes, you got 15 minutes. Are you paying for my 15 minutes or are you paying for my 15 years of experience? Mm-hmm. So I also think we shouldn't be billing by the minute. I think that's a huge issue as well. You're paying yeah. for my expertise. And if I'm done with you quicker, if I can give you the, the information you need in 15 minutes instead of an hour, isn't that worth more money to you? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't that be worth more money to you if I get you the same valuable information in 15 minutes and you need to get on stage? I think so. But if you truly need two hours of my time to help you get to the next step, to help you get out of the emergency department, to help you get back on stage, then that's what you need to have. Mm-hmm. That's just not how our healthcare system is really set up. Yeah, unfortunately. But our decision-making can be because we do have the tools we need. We just need to learn how to use them in unfamiliar ways and more efficient and expeditious ways. Yes, definitely. And I think, you know, being able to build up the skill set, get the mentors like you're talking about, where it's like, you know, learning for dancers there are some things that we see a bit more uniquely because of the flexibility that needs to happen or some of the crazy skills that occur yes. in in the movement and that kind of thing that we have to consider things a little bit differently sometimes of what we're seeing or why are we seeing these things. So getting that that experience to build on top of the the base skill set for all of it too. And, you know, like thinking of one of the first companies that I did on-site care for that was a traveling company where I didn't know any of the dancers, I get there and they also let me know that one of their dancers had gotten hurt the night before and was in a lot of pain. And they wanted me to look at him to decide whether or not he was staying on tour or getting sent back home. Ouch. Yeah. And so, you know, things Mm. like that, that come up. And so being able to have all of those other things feel more solid makes that kind of scenario a lot easier to try to manage because you have a strong foundation already. For sure. But I think the other piece of that is you have to be okay with being wrong too. Sometimes you're going to make a mistake. Sometimes somebody needed to go to the ED and usually in that case, it's not going to be life-threatening, right? Like maybe they needed something. I I find it hard to believe you'd miss something life-threatening, but um, maybe they did need to go. Maybe they weren't ready to stay on the tour. Maybe you did send them out too soon. Mistakes will happen and every medical professional makes mistakes. We've all done it. We will all continue to do it. And I think knowing that and accepting that is hard because we never want to let our patients down. But that fear, I think, sometimes holds us back to that decision. What if I'm wrong? 
what if you're wrong right now? You're just picking the safe wrong. You're not picking the, the dangerous wrong. I like right. that, but like you're also maybe picking the wrong thing still for the patient and just acknowledging and then accepting that. And I think working in the ED, I really had to get comfortable with that. That I might be wrong. That maybe mm -hmm. that patient did need an MRI or maybe their condition hadn't evolved enough yet for me mm -hmm. to have all the information. Right. Maybe they didn't give me all the information. There's so many things that go into making those difficult decisions that I think sometimes we're going to be right and sometimes we're going to be wrong, but we have to do the best we can with the information that we have for the patient we have in front of us. Yes. And I've gotten a lot more comfortable the longer I've been practicing with that idea of, you know, I may be wrong, being able to tell a patient, like, I am erring on the side of caution. This is my concern yeah. because, mm -hmm. um, or also being comfortable with saying, I don't know. Yes. Even with my experience and my skill set, I don't know. Let me refer you to so-and-so who uh -huh. I believe will be able to help sort this out. And that's when you need those resources again. Because while we are doctors of physical therapy, we're autonomous providers, healthcare shouldn't be autonomous. There shouldn't be one of us. It, we should be working as a team. Like we all have this beautiful education that if we put it all together, we can come up with some really amazing things and do the best for our patients. And that's what we really want, right? Is patient-centered care, um, which is really hard to provide sometimes. But I think if we can like make sure our egos aren't the thing keeping us from providing that care, then that goes a long way as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I know I even have run into that for myself where, you know, especially early in my career where, you know, I, th I think we all kind of have different phases as we work as professionals. And there definitely can be that phase where it's sort of like, I should be able to handle anything that comes in. Yeah. And even things for myself where it's like, I'm having pain or injury and it's like, well, I'm a physical therapist. I should know what to do for this. Uh-huh but it's not working. And then it's sort of like, but I don't want to admit to somebody else that I yeah. need their help. No, you do. Yeah, I, I do know. I'm terrible with myself. I have no chill with my kids though. So what I've learned is like, I can't, I'm not great at making decisions for my kids because mm -hmm. I'm so afraid I'm going to make a mistake that I don't ever want to be the one that made the mistake that didn't get the right thing for my kids. So with my kids, I'm like, Hey, yeah, please come tell me what you think. Or I'm going to take you early and often to see some another expert because I want you to have the best care that you can. Mm -hmm. um, and then with myself, I'm like, oh, no, that's fine. I can wait. It's, it's okay. It'll be fine. You know, <laughs> but I did just have to go to physical therapy for an issue because I, it wasn't my area of expertise. I don't know how to progress it. It's not doing what I thought it would do. And ha having help is a beautiful thing if we let ourselves have it. And I think, too, when we're private practice owners or we're private practitioners, we're used to working alone. Sometimes it's even harder to reach out for that extra support, which is why I like highly recommend community building yes. so that you have people you can ask. Definitely. Yes. And I have, that's one of the things, like I have built some of my people where it's like, you know, if I know that this is something that helps or I'm having a problem with somebody, I have my people that I go to, whether it's another physical therapist, whether it's a massage therapist, because I know that that's what my body needs for that thing right now, or, yeah. you know, whatever it is, I have those people that a lot of times I use for myself, but also end up being some of the people that I may use as part of that referral network too. There can be a lot of overlap with some of those two pieces.
that also helps those providers know what you can offer. Yeah. And then that everybody gets what they need better that way. When, when we all work together and we can provide like that actual health care. I think Not that's a concept. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I think at this point, I want to introduce a special segment that we have here on Dance Med Spotlight. Ready. All right, so we have the final bow. Basically, this is the what is your take-home message for the audience? Because we've talked about a lot of different things, a lot of great information that they can pull from. We know they're not going to remember everything, but what's like the thing that you hope somebody walks away with? Uh, the thing that I hope you walk away with from this episode is that as a physical therapist, you should be practicing at the top of your scope, no matter where you're practicing, whether you're in the emergency department, when you're in stage wings, whether you're at a convention, like I, uh, it doesn't matter. We need you practicing at the very top of what your license allows. We need you understanding all the components that go into being a physical therapist, whether that's the cardiopulmonary side or the wound care side. Like all of those things are important for us to know. Do I need you to be an expert at all of that? Absolutely not. But we have to have all of those pieces so we can make the best decisions for our patients at any moment. And so taking all those tools in your toolbox and then being able to be versatile and fluid with how you use them. So we don't only use evaluate low back pain in standing or sitting, that we can evaluate somebody who's stuck and prone. That just because somebody's in 10 out of 10 pain, we can still help them. We don't have to send them to someone else. If we're practicing at top of scope, use all the tools that you can in maybe some of the most unfamiliar ways to do the best that you can for your patient. And then also knowing what the top of your scope is so that when you're outside of it, you know, and you're sending people where they need to be mm -hmm. and making partnerships with other people so that our patients aren't ever getting dropped. Yes, I love that. Last thing, mm -hmm. this is your opportunity for any shameless plug that you want to make for Ooh. yourself or anything that you do. So feel free to share away. Uh, well, I would say that we do have a course on digital triage, which helps keep patients out of the emergency department. So if the things that we were talking about today just didn't feel comfortable to you and you're like, gosh, how do I actually implement that and feel confident with that? That is a um, online opportunity that you can access anytime on my website, which is www.theeddpt.com. Also do have a book called Top of Scope. Now, the focus of that book is really on emergency department physical therapist practice, but people who have read the book that don't have an intention of starting a program in that area find the book really helpful for the Top of Scope mindset, as well as any quality improvement initiative. So if you're thinking of starting a new program, if you're thinking of building your own business, the fundamentals that go into building a thriving practice in the emergency department can be easily taken away from this book and then applied to whatever clinical setting or quality improvement initiative you're thinking of. And I can also help with consulting for people who are trying to start any initiatives in that space, whether it's in the emergency department or not. And that's available on Amazon. Wonderful. We'll make sure that everybody has the links to be able to check all of those different things out because those are fantastic resources for sure. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope people were able to walk away with a lot 
and have opportunities to maybe find some areas also where it's like, hmm, maybe that's something that I can go get some more training and go get some more mentorship in and really help us act at the top of our practice for everything. Love it. Thank you so much. Dance Med Spotlight is hosted and produced by Alyssa Arms. We discuss all things dance medicine. This has been another episode from Dance Med Spotlight. The Dance Med Spotlight is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present.